In today's episode, we'll tell you what catches an editor's attention when they're reading chapbook manuscripts. Welcome to the second episode of The Chapbook. I'm your host, Noah Stetzer. And I'm Ross White. Noah and I are the directors at Bull City Press. That's an independent publisher of poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction, where we focus on chapbooks. We started this podcast to talk about our love of chapbooks, to demystify the publishing process, and share with you what's going on in the world of chapbooks. All right. So we're going to get into it today, Ross. Last time we talked a little bit about uh, where chapbooks sort of originated and how they sort of came into being, if you will, their origin story. The exploding planet of chapbook sent one final scion (laughs) of chapbooks to Earth, which uh, grew up in the Smallville of chapbooks. And now we're looking at super chapbooks. The things we look for in a chapbook, things that we like when we encounter a chapbook that sticks in our that sticks in our memory or, or uh, that we respond to in a good way. And today we're going to be talking about what we look for as readers, as two people who love chapbooks from all kinds of presses, but also what we look for as editors when we are in the thick of the reading experience. When we hit that first poem on the page, we're going to talk about what we're ready to encounter. Right. So I think let's jump right in. I, uh, one of the things that that we've talked about uh, a number of times when we're discussing chapbooks that, that uh, we respond to is this idea of uh, a balance between three dimensions, perhaps, in a poem or in a manuscript. We sort of shorthand that as the triad, right? The triad, image, thinking, feeling. And this is a concept that gets bandied about in creative writing classrooms all the time, but it's a really useful one. If I don't see images early in a chapbook, I start to think that something is missing. Because to me, the building blocks of poetry are image and metaphor. I, I really, I want to be engaged by image and metaphor. And the reason I'm so tied to image is that concrete images are language that activate the senses, the five senses. And it's not until you've activated my five senses that I feel fully immersed in the world of the book. It's not until you've activated my body that I'm capable really of feeling, and that's probably my deficiency as a reader, right? <laughs> but it's it's really not until I've got images to sort of hang on to that my full empathy enters into the reading experience. But it's not image uh, absent of anything else, right? I think we're also talking about, um, that brings me to this idea of what the thinking and the feeling is happening within the manuscript as well. In my mind, I sometimes think of that as um, sort of the uh, Apollonian right sense of things as in Apollo, that sort of structure and logic versus the Dionysian side of things, which is like sort of the ecstatic and the feeling and the emotion of something and how those two frequencies are modulated 
right? It's not, it's not like it's 30% image, 30% into like 30% emotion, right? That's not what we're saying. It's not an equilateral triangle. <laughs> right. Okay. Now it's math and we're going to have to pull back <laughs> because I'm getting a nosebleed. It would certainly help me as someone who's very sort of, um, you know, I love a good spreadsheet, uh, you know, it would be helpful if I just could measure 33% of each and then be like, you know, clap my hands together and say, okay, this poem is done. But that's not really where the artistry comes from. It's it's modulating each of those channels and coming up with something different each time. As I read a book, I've got to have moments where I feel strongly. And that feeling has got to be authentic. That feeling has got to be kind of moving. Good poems are often balancing two feelings at the same time. And sometimes those feelings are conflicting. So a manuscript needs to take me through a range of feeling. And if that feeling is like hotly charged 100% of the time, that's too much. I need moments where I can breathe a little bit. Those are the moments where thinking comes in, right? Those are the moments where the manuscript steps back from its feeling just a little bit to contemplate one of the big questions. I, I think this kind of brings me to this idea of uh, formal rigor, which is something else we talk a lot about with books that we uh, respond to. Because I, I think a, a lot of the uh, mechanisms that are used, particularly in poetry or in any writing, help the writer to make those transitions, right, from intellect to emotion or to adjust each of those things as we're navigating through a poem or a manuscript. What do you think of that? A hundred percent. Basically, if the poem doesn't demonstrate artistry, if the book doesn't demonstrate a wide range of skill, then it's really easy to dip into that place where we feel like we become aware of the artifice of the poem. Great poems are so masterfully built that we're almost not aware of the tools being used to build. We're almost not aware of the rhyme. We're almost not aware of the rhythm. We're almost not aware of the masterful manipulation of syntax in a really well-crafted poem. But a really good book always invites rereading somehow. It always asks us to come back. And the second time I read a poem or a book, I pay a lot of attention to how the poet crafted it. It's it's the very what you're saying uh, reminds me immediately of rewatching movies and my experience of going back to movies I really love and noticing more and more of the technical work that went into parts of the movie that I I really remember. I'm going to spoil a I think 30-year-old movie, The Sixth Sense. Do you remember the oh, first yeah. time you saw The Sixth Sense? Of course. And it's yeah. got that amazing turn at the end. But then you had to go back and see it again. And all along, all of those elements were in place. Yes, absolutely. The filmmaking was so masterfully done to lead to a conclusion. And maybe that brings us to something else that we really value in manuscripts, which is surprise. <laughs> yes, really, that's totally well done transition and completely appropriate for this moment in the conversation. Right. Like using your metaphor uh, and, and this analogy of the sixth sense, going back and seeing the breadcrumbs, if you will, 
well that the director laid throughout the story that helped to establish the veracity of the surprise at the end, right? Like we all said, of course, like, oh my gosh. Um, and the reason why it was such a success is because the, the, the technical work was sort of underneath the story all along. It didn't come out of left field. It wasn't sort of a cheap kind of trick, right? Yeah, it was inevitable, even though we didn't see it coming. And that's what a really good book does. And it doesn't have to be a book that uses narrative in any way. It doesn't have to tell a story. Sometimes the emotional journey that a book takes you on leads you to a place that upon reflection, it was headed all along, but that we didn't fully see until all the pieces came together at some point in the manuscript. Yeah. You said something just now about not being able to see um, until they all came together. And and that makes me think of another area that we talk about in in manuscripts and chat books, which is clarity. What we're talking about in the sense of finally, maybe finally seeing is another way to sort of talk about that moment uh, that a manuscript maybe sort of directs us towards. That finally seeing isn't isn't about lack of clarity, right? That's not that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a very deliberate and crafted experience. All all of the decisions were made deliberately along the way to lead to a particular experience in the book or a particular, you know, sort of moment that occurs at the end of a poem, but there's clarity there in that all of the opportunities for confusion have been sort of weighed and assessed and that and the writer has made decisions deliberate decisions all along the way. I want each individual poem to be as crisp as possible. And clarity is not opposed to mystery. Poems can have mystery. Poems can suggest more than they say. That's my favorite part of the image portion of our triad is that images so often suggest more than they say. That's not unclear. And if a poem's going to obfuscate, if it's going to obscure, if it's going to use opaqueness as a strategy, then like you said, Noah, I want to have the feeling that that opaqueness is in service of the poem's intention. It's in service of the poem's best self. But as a whole, I've got to have a clear sense that the manuscript knows what it's doing that the poems know what they're doing and aren't relying on big abstractions that I have to come in and do a lot of the work to sort of fill up. What we're talking about with this idea of clarity um, brings me to terms like precision and accuracy. Um, and by those, I mean, you know, the, the, the work has gone in to, to find just the right word, to really fine tune uh, and bring into focus the imagery so that it goes beyond the expected or it goes beyond an assumed sort of cliche understanding of what this image is doing um, and really makes it unique to this particular work. The precise word, no wasted words. That is part of clarity is that economy of language and economical language. Compressed language is always more vigorous. Is there superfluous information? 
here that or is every item vital to the ultimate experience of the poem or the manuscript or did we have a lot of sort of loose end rabbit holes we go down that don't lead anywhere when we're thinking about the ultimate intention of the manuscript that brings me to one more thing that i know we're both looking for and that's risk what are the stakes here like what are we what are we all doing here <laughs> is something i often i often say like we've all been invited to this poem we've all been invited to this book what's what's the point yeah if the book never reveals something that's vulnerable for the author then it's never going to transport me to a place where i have to consider who I am, what I am, how I live in the world. And really good books ask me to do that. Even quiet books, even books that don't necessarily have a project or even books that don't necessarily have like a really hot tonal charge can ask me to contemplate what is the world and how do I live in it? Those big unanswerable questions, those are risky to look at. Yeah. And, and often the book where uh, an author is tackling something uh, in a way that feels, I almost said the word dire, but that's wrong. Uh, I want to say that, you know, it, it feels like, like there's something on the line. Yeah. It feels brutally honest and the brutality is often directed back at the author. <laughs> Right, right. But at the same time, um, still uh, brings in uh, craftsmanship and um, artistry and skill so that it it's not simply, you know, sort of a, a frank and unvarnished confession, uh, but it takes that and crafts it, that, that takes that sort of fundamental utterance which is typically like the, the early drafts and comes back to it again and again to craft it into something. I, like it, I keep moving my hands around like someone who pulls uh, something out of the ground, but then spends hours chipping away at it and, and polishing it. Our listeners cannot see your hands. I know. <laughs> so it's the idea of taking a rock out of the ground and turning it into a diamond, which is incredibly cliche, but that's sort of what I'm getting at. <laughs> So let's recap real quick. We're looking for a balance between thinking, feeling, and image. Yes, we're also we're looking at uh, the the formal rigor uh, that the manuscript may display. So things like line break and meter, sound and syntax. How is that all being handled throughout the manuscript, throughout the book? We want the book to enact some kind of surprise. And with that, does this is the surprise earned? Is there uh, you know a good sense of clarity throughout the manuscript, throughout the book, so that the poems are crisp and all of the choices are solid and deliberate? And finally, does the book take a risk? Does the book get vulnerable? Does the book have something at stake? Does the book feel in some way dangerous? I don't think I could ask for anything more, <laughs> although I'm sure in future episodes we'll have a lot more to say about the things. We'll have so much more to say. <laughs> <laughs> Look for future episodes where we'll talk a little bit more about the nitty gritty on submitting and how your manuscript might look. Right now we're just getting into sort of the 3,000 feet, 30,000 feet in the air kind of look at what, at what a manuscript has that, that really speaks to us. If you like the podcast, why not go ahead and click subscribe or better yet, 
tell a friend. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all the other major pod places. And you can find out what we and our friends at Bull City Press are up to by following us on Twitter and on Instagram at Bull City Press or by visiting BullCityPress.com. Until next time, I'm Ross. (laughs) And I'm Noah. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. 